Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Kohalit Podcast. My name is Leonard, and I will be your host for this week's episode. Today, we are going to be taking a look at Chapter 8 in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. This chapter continues our discussion on the four characteristics of Scripture, and this week we look at the fourth part, which is the sufficiency of Scripture. Today we are going to be answering the question, is the Bible enough for knowing what God wants us to think or do? So, let's jump in and talk about it. We can start by defining the sufficiency of Scripture as follows. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. It's from this definition that we say it is in Scripture alone that we are to search for God's words to us, because God considers what He has told us in the Bible to be enough for us, and that we should rejoice in the great revelation he has given us and be content with it. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says to Timothy, From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now in this verse... You hear the words sacred writings, which refers to the written words of scripture that are the words of God, and they are all the words we need in order to be saved, and they are able to make us, as the verse says, wise for salvation. Perhaps the most common verse that refers to the sufficiency of scripture can be found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. They follow that verse we just read, and it says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So one purpose for which God caused scripture to be written is to train us that we might be equipped for every good work. So if there is any good work that God wants a Christian to do, this passage indicates to us that God has made provision in his word for training the Christian in it. This means that there is no good work that God wants us to do other than those that are taught somewhere in Scripture, because, as the verse says, it can equip us for every good work. Now, Psalm 119, verse 1 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. So this verse shows us an equivalent between being blameless and walking in the law of the Lord. So we say that those who are blameless are those who walk in the law of the Lord, right? So if we simply keep the words of Scripture, it means we will be blameless, and we will be doing every good work that God expects of us. James chapter 3, verse 
2 says, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So, of course, we realize that we will never perfectly obey all of Scripture in this life. But because Scripture is sufficient, it enables us to focus our search for God's words to us on the Bible alone, and that saves us from the endless task of searching through all the writings of Christians throughout all of history and all the teachings of the church or all of the other subjective feelings and impressions that come to our minds from day to day in order to find what God requires of us. So even though it would require a lot of work, it is possible to find all of the biblical passages that are directly relevant to different subject matters. For example, a marriage and divorce, or the responsibility of parents to children, or the relationship between a Christian and civil government. We could find all of those. This doctrine means also that it would be possible to collect all of the passages that directly relate to doctrinal issues, such as the atonement, or the person of Christ, or the works of the Holy Spirit in believers' lives today. The sufficiency of scripture gives us confidence that we will be able to find what God requires us to think or do in these areas. So this doctrine tells us that it is possible to study systematic theology and ethics and to find answers to our questions. This is one area where we differ from the Roman Catholic theologians because they would say that we have not found all that God has to say on any particular subject until we have also listened to the official teachings of the church throughout history. In fact, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is interested, does not arrive her certainty about all revealed truth from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. So to that we would say, Although the history of the church may help us to understand what God says to us in the Bible, never in church history has God added to the teachings of or the commands in Scripture. Remember, Scripture is sufficient to equip us for every good work, and to walk in its ways is to be blameless in God's sight. There are also some other non-evangelical theologians who are not convinced that the Bible is God's word in any unique or absolutely authoritative, authoritative sense, and who would therefore search not only the Bible, but also many other Christian or early Christian writings in an attempt to find not so much what God said to mankind— but rather what many early Christians experienced in their relationship with God. 
And we would certainly disagree with these folks also. And our reply would be that our search for answers to theological and ethical questions is not a search to find what various believers have thought throughout the history of the church, but it's actually a quest to find and understand what God himself says to us in his own words, which we know are found in scripture and only in scripture. We now will shift our focus to talk about how the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture means that the amount of scripture given was sufficient at each stage in redemptive history. This doctrine does not imply that God cannot add any more words to those he has already spoken to his people at any point in redemptive history. It also doesn't imply that God had given all scripture all at one time. For in fact, we know that he did give scripture at many times and in many ways, as we learn in Hebrews chapter one, verse one, and he did it over a period of about 1500 years. What this doctrine does imply though, is that no human author can add any words to those that God has already spoken. And it also implies that God has not spoken to mankind any more words, which he requires us to believe or obey, rather than those which we have now in our Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. So this tells us that God has always taken the initiative in revealing things to us. He has decided what to reveal and what not to reveal. At the time of the death of Moses, the first five books of our Old Testament were sufficient for God's people. But God directed later authors to add more so that scripture would be sufficient for believers in subsequent times. So for Christians today, the words from God that we have in the Old Testament and New Testament together are sufficient for us during the church age. This means that we can cite scripture text from uh, throughout the entire canon, that means your entire Bible, to show that the principle of the sufficiency of God's revelation to his people at each particular time has remained the same. But remember that scripture is very clear about not adding words to it. Let's take a look at a couple of those verses quickly. Deuteronomy chapter four, verse two says, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord, your God that I command you. And Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32 says, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. And then finally, Proverbs uh, chapter 30, verses 5 and 6 says, Every word of God proves true. 
He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. At this point, we are going to shift our focus a little bit and start talking about some of the practical applications of the sufficiency of Scripture. And the first one is that we can teach theology and ethics. So the sufficiency of Scripture encourages us that as we try to figure out what God might want us to think about something or to do in a particular situation— that everything he wants to tell us about that question is going to be found in Scripture. But this does not mean that the Bible answers all questions that we might ever come up with. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 says, the secret things belong to our Lord. But it does mean that when we are facing a problem that is of genuine importance to the Christian's life, we can approach Scripture with confidence, knowing that from it, God will provide us with guidance for that problem. We do have to acknowledge, though, that there are going to be some times when the answer to one of our questions is simply that Scripture does not speak directly to that question. So, for example, the book gives us uh, some questions that people might have, like about uh, what order of worship we should follow on a Sunday morning, or whether it is better to kneel or to stand when we pray, or what time we should eat our meals during the day. And in those cases, What we should conclude is that God has not required us to think or act in any certain way with regards to that particular question. But in many other cases, we will find direct and clear guidance from the Lord to once again equip us for every good work. The second application of the sufficiency of Scripture says that we should add no other writings to Scripture or have them alongside Scripture. This also means that we are to consider no other writings of equal value to Scripture. And this is a principle that is violated by uh, almost all different sects that are deviant offshoots of Christianity. So, for example, Mormons believe the Bible, but they also claim divine authority for the Book of Mormon, which in practice functions as a higher authority for them. Also, uh, Christian scientists uh, have a kind of like a similar claim to believe in the Bible, But in practice, they hold the book Science and Health with a Key to the Scriptures by Mary Baker Eddy above Scripture in authority. And since these claims violate God's commands of not to add to his words, we should not think that any additional words from God to us would be found in these particular writings, right? And I think we could also say that sometimes there are 
uh, even good-meaning Christians in church that might do something like this with a particular book or a movie that they come across. And just kind of thinking off the top of my head, um, I could come up with one of those movies or books that have been made about like a certain individual's experience when they say that they died and they travel to heaven and then they come back to life and then if they write this book or, or make a movie to tell us exactly what heaven is like. Now, we should never put any words in those types of things above what is already said in Scripture. Because we believe that Scripture is sufficient. It doesn't need to be added to or enhanced by any of those things. And we're going to apply that same principle when we think about uh, the need to search through other forms of ancient literature, uh, maybe in the hopes of finding more words from God or more words that Jesus or his apostles spoke while they are on earth. There are some people who have looked through these letters. Um, Some of them might include uh, the Gospel of Peter or the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Philip and uh, maybe the gospel according to Mary, and they've been looking for these things. We can acknowledge that it could be possible that some of the sayings of Jesus found in these writings are accurate records of things Jesus actually said, but we know that it would be impossible for us to determine for sure if they are. But furthermore, we are confident that God has caused to be recorded in Scripture everything that we need to know about Jesus's words and deeds in order to trust and obey him perfectly. So since scripture is already sufficient, we don't need to be searching those things. There's not going to be anything extra for us in them. The third implication about the sufficiency of scripture is that we should consider no modern revelations from God to be equal to scripture in authority. So at certain times throughout history, people have claimed that God has given revelations through them for the benefit of the church. Now, we aren't here in this chapter to discuss or evaluate those exact types of claims, but we must be careful to never allow in theory or in practice the policing of such revelations on a level that is ever equal to Scripture. We insist that God does not require us to believe anything about himself or his work in the world that is contained in these revelations, but not in Scripture. And we also insist that God does not require us to obey any moral directives that come to us through those types of things, but that are not confirmed by Scripture. Because we know that the Bible contains all the words of God we need for trusting and obeying Him perfectly. Now, sometimes people with these revelations will also say that they are being uh, guided by the Holy Spirit. But no matter what, we must remember that the Holy Spirit will never lead us to disobey any command of Scripture. Nor should our sense of the Holy Spirit's individual guidance ever carry the same weight 
as scripture in our own thinking. Now, in the book, Grudem does say that he does personally, him personally, he believes that uh, God may guide us individually to take a certain action on things. And he gives us a few examples of that, like um, maybe you feel that God has directed you to fast every Thursday, or you feel like God has um, told you to cancel a subscription to a newspaper. Now, you may feel that, but we should never try to force that decision on all Christians in our church. Only the commandments of the Bible have universal applicability to all Christians. In defense of that point, uh, he cites Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, which we aren't going to go through, uh, we aren't going to read here in this study, but I do encourage you to check them out. Again, that was Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. The fourth implication about the sufficiency of Scripture is that we should consider nothing to be sin that is not forbidden by Scripture either explicitly or by implication. It would seem that people are always fighting that temptation to add to the list of sins that are already forbidden in Scripture. But the sufficiency of Scripture reminds us that nothing is sin that is not forbidden by Scripture, again, either explicitly or by implication. Remember uh, Psalm 119, verse 1 says, To walk in the law of the Lord is to be blameless. This means we're not to add prohibition to those already listed in Scripture. Uh, There are Christian leaders throughout history in some churches that have required their congregations to follow some specific rules, such as uh, maybe not attending movie theaters or not allowing dancing or not using playing cards. But as Christians, we should be willing to allow a variety of personal preferences within some fairly broad outer limits. And these things might include maybe like food preferences or Uh, babies, meaning like when to have them or how many you should have, Uh, things like homeschooling versus public school or health decisions or holidays, like how we might celebrate Halloween or Christmas or participation in sports activities. Those lists could go on and on. Now, we do agree that there are wise decisions and foolish decisions that can be made in these categories. But unless Scripture clearly requires or prohibits something, Christians should allow for a considerable variety of personal preferences and individual choices. Kind of like a a personal example, uh, many of you guys who might know me and my family know that a big part of our story has been a big disdain for uh, debt, and we've done everything we can to be out of it and to stay away from it. So even though that is our family's personal conviction, we cannot say through scripture that it is a sin, So therefore, people, if they choose to be in debt, they are free to do so. 
it's uh, kind of one of those things where like we'd say that scripture advises that it's not the wisest thing to do, but it does not explicitly forbid it. So we cannot say that it's a sin because we do not add to the list of sins. Grudem does make the point in this chapter that when we add to the list of things that are prohibited by scripture, it is actually harmful to the church and the individual lives of believers. He says that the Holy Spirit will not empower obedience to rules that do not have God's approval from scripture, nor will believers generally find delight in obedience to commands that do not accord with the laws of God that are written on their hearts. That's actually a really powerful statement there. He gives a great example of kind of an addition to the commands of Scripture in response to uh, a claim by the Ro- the Roman Catholic Church in their opposition to artificial methods of birth control, a policy that he says finds no valid support in Scripture. He says that widespread disobedience and alienation and false guilt have been the results to people in those congregations because of it. But we have to think that that practice of adding to the list of sins can probably be found either in like written or unwritten traditions of almost every denomination out there. It's just something we have to be extremely careful of. The fifth implication of the sufficiency of scripture is that we should consider nothing to be required of us that is not commanded in scripture, again, either explicitly or by implication. So the focus of our search for God's will ought to be on what scripture teaches rather than on seeking guidance through prayer for changed circumstances or altered feelings or direct guidance from the Holy Spirit apart from scripture. It also means that if someone claims to have a message from God telling us what we ought to do, we need to never assume that it is sin to disobey that message unless it can be confirmed by the application of scripture itself to our situation. See, Christians who are convinced of the sufficiency of scripture should begin eagerly to seek and find God's will in scripture. They should be eagerly and regularly growing in obedience to God, knowing great freedom and peace that they're going to find in the Christian life. So Psalm 119, we've quoted that one a lot, but verses 44 and 45, and then we'll add on verse 165 at the end. It says, I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. And then we get onto verse 165, which goes on to say, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. And now we come to the sixth and final implication of the sufficiency of scripture. And it says that we should emphasize what scripture emphasizes and be content with the scripture that God has given. 
This means that there are going to be some subjects which God has told us very little or nothing about in the Bible. But we must remember that verse we've shared from Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, that says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And Grudem tells us that there are many unorthodox Christian uh, sects that emphasize obscure portions or teachings of scripture. And he does give an example uh, of the Mormon emphasis on the baptism of the dead, which is a subject that is mentioned only in one verse in the Bible, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29, which is also... Uh, in a phrase whose exact meaning is apparently impossible to determine with certainty now. We're also pointed to the fact that the doctrinal matters that have divided even evangelical Protestant denominations from one another have almost always been matters on which the Bible places relatively little emphasis and matters which are conclusions that must be drawn from skillful inference much more than from direct biblical statements. Some of the examples of issues that he places into this category are proper forms of church government, uh, the exact nature of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper, the exact sequence of the events surrounding Christ's return, the categories of persons who should be admitted to the Lord's Supper, uh, the way that God planned that the merits of Christ's death would be applied to believers and not applied to unbelievers, uh, maybe the subjects or the proper subjects for baptism and the correct understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, Grudem is not saying that these issues are unimportant. Let's be clear on that. And he's also not saying that um, that we should say that Scripture gives no solution to any of them, because in fact, many of those specific topics will be dealt with on this podcast and in this book in some of the later chapters. What he is saying is that since all of these topics receive relatively little direct emphasis in Scripture— that it's ironic and tragic that denominational leaders will so often give much of their entire lives to defending these precisely minor doctrinal points that make their specific denominations different from others. And with that, we find ourselves now at the end of chapter 8 and the end of our study for this week. Now, as always, if you do have any questions about something we went over in this podcast, please feel free to send them forward and they may get answered on a later episode. We look forward to having you join us next week as we continue with chapter nine. But until then, God bless. <laughs>